0: Welcome, my friends, to our last week in studying the book of Zechariah together this summer. And I'll be reading from the last chapter of the book from the beginning and the end of chapter 14. Let us hear the word of the Lord together. Behold, a day of the Lord is coming when the plunder taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall withdraw northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee by the valley of the Lord's mountain." For the valley between the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall not be either cold or frost, and there shall be continuous day, it is known to the Lord, not day and not night, for at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the eastern sea and half of it to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. On that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be as holy as the bowls in front of the altar, and every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and use them to boil the flesh of the sacrifice. And there shall no longer be traitors in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So there is a, a sort of, I, I don't know if it's really a literary device, but it's a sort of a literary trope or idea that we are familiar with in our culture. And it doesn't even have a name, so I'll have to just say it. It's the, the teacher has left the classroom and the kids go crazy trope. You know what I'm talking about? I have an image of it, okay? So the teacher leaves. Uh, maybe it's a family emergency or a phone call, or or something like that. But for, I don't know, 17 and a half minutes, the class is left alone. I don't really know if that's allowed, but we can imagine how it is. And and sometimes, in this trope, uh, a student, a good one, maybe you, is put in charge. But we all know how this is going to turn out. But if you don't, let's imagine. So so first, some kids start throwing spitballs, uh, making paper airplanes, and and Randall, I'm going to make up names, and if this is your name, please don't take it personally. So Randall goes to the board and draws a caricature of the teacher with a big witch hat on her head and her freckles turned into warts, and then Morgan usurps the teacher's desk and climbs up on it and stands there and proclaims, I'm the queen of the classroom now. And then Frances and Ryan disagree with that choice and they try to pull her off the desk and her shirt catches on the drawer and it rips and then there is pandemonium. Someone pulls the wavy paper border off the board and the, the staples go flying. And Michael starts drawing on the window with a sharpie and you, the good student, assigned to keep calm, what can you do, right? So maybe you try writing down everyone's name on the board, and then you put a check beside them for each infraction, but then you run out of room. You you try yelling, everyone, calm down, but no one hears you. And you go to the door and, and open it and look down the hall to see if the teacher is coming, but the hall is empty. And so you just sit down at your desk, With your arms over your head, and and hope that it is a fast time before the teacher comes back and and you hear the trash bin being emptied out on the floor, and and you hear the class bully pummeling the clarinet player with his clarinet. And, And you know, if you get up and say something, you will be next. And your goal has quickly changed from keep calm and carry on to keep calm and stay alive. This is the setting for Zechariah chapter 14. Except it is way worse. You heard the text. The classroom is all the places God's people have been in the recent past. Babylon, Persia, Jerusalem. The spitballers and the bullies are the Persians and the Samaritans and, and other neighbors who have been harassing the Hebrew people as they've tried to rebuild their home. Their plunder is divided in front of them. In other words, the enemies have tied them up and they are going through the safe, dividing out grandma's jewelry and those gold bricks they had invested in because of economic instability. They have witnessed the ultimate objectification of their wives and mothers and sisters and daughters. It is way worse than any classroom metaphor. And then... When it can't get any worse, God comes back to this messy, abusive system. God comes back. We read in the passage, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. We can imagine God entering the classroom. He takes the bully by the scruff of his neck and holds him up by the collar of his shirt. He tells Morgan and those coup leaders what's what. He erases the embarrassing caricature of the teacher on the chalkboard, the whiteboard. (laughs) He makes the spitballers pick up and then eat their spitballs. He handcuffs the bully and repairs the clarinet, and then he's not done yet. He puts one hand on either of the sides of the doorframe, and he pushes, and he opens a way so that you and that poor clarinet prodigy and the other kids who are just trying to keep calm can get out, but it also opens up a way in, a way back for his helpers, for the, the angel army, as we hear about a lot in Zechariah, for the principal and the teacher and the janitor to come in and help clean things up, help make the wrong things right. The day I just described, This is often in the Bible talked about as a day of the Lord or the day of the Lord. You can can see it at the beginning of the text. A day of the Lord is coming. We hear about this a lot in in prophetic writings. I, I would define it as the day of the Lord is when God intervenes in chaotic human affairs to save and to judge It is not necessarily a single event in the history of the world, but when it comes, it is cataclysmic for those who experience it. No one can escape the day of the Lord. It's crucial to understanding this that on the day of the Lord, God is active. He's not standing there silently, just observing the going ons, He's not a silent witness. God doesn't just stand beside, checking his watch, seeing how long this is going to be, when it's going to be over. No, God is personally intervening on behalf of his people, and no one can escape from it. Now, Zechariah is classified in the biblical genre of prophecy. It is a prophetic book, and sometimes when we think about prophetic books, we think more about foretelling, looking toward the future, foretelling the future, rather than forthtelling the truth. And sometimes people can read these books, and they can think, oh, the day of the Lord. That sounds scary. When will it be? I wonder. And and then maybe one looks for, I don't know, some clues and and makes a timeline called the end times and starts looking for clues. People have done this. Don't do this. Jesus said no one would know when the day of the Lord would be. I, I would almost say that the day of the Lord is is beyond time, because there is a sense, and I'll get to this in a little bit in the sermon, that the day of the Lord has actually already happened, and it will happen. But let's picture this day of the Lord in Zechariah 14, and and we remember that prophetic pictures are like evocative art. It is not uh, a journalistic report of the future. And so here we see God standing on this mountain, his feet planted firmly, and with his feet, I mean, I have to imagine the strength of his legs, right? He is breaking the mountain in two to make a way out and to make a way in. And this way out is a rescue, and it's it's an escape for God's people. And the way in is the way for the army, the, the, the Lord's angel armies to enter. And this is the picture we see in the first half of the chapter. God returns to his suffering people. God intervenes to, in, in the chaos to save and to judge. And then we see God, the next thing that God does is he, he remakes and restores creation. We read, on that day there shall not be either cold or frost, and there shall be continuous day, it is known to the Lord, not day and not night, for at evening time there shall be light. And on that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the eastern sea and half of it to the western sea. It shall continue as in summer as in winter. This passage, my friend, is an echo of Genesis chapter 1. There is darkness. The darkness has always been a place of chaos, and the darkness is gone. The water which is chaotic when it is the sea, and it's problematic when there isn't enough of it, when there's a drought, the water is ordered. There is the right amount of water. The water continues in summer, when it's drought, as in winter. And here, God's presence becomes the literal source of what humanity needs to survive. The, The heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon, they're no longer needed to produce light. God is the light. They congeal, it says in the Hebrew. And and the water starts to flow from Jerusalem where God lives. Flowing water in scripture is sometimes in the New Testament what is called living water. And it's flowing from the center of God's presence. And then there is the key to this passage. And the Lord will become king over all the earth On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And if you brought your own Bible, please don't mark in the pew Bibles, but if you brought your own Bible, this is a good verse to underline because it is the theme verse in this section. The Lord will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And this echoes, it references the passage in Deuteronomy, which is sometimes called the theme verse of the Old Testament, which is called the Shema, which means the here, because it is here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Because, as Pastor Lars preached about last week, these other gods, they're not God. Our God is the only God. Our God is God and ruler, and our response is clear to love with with our whole self. Not just our heart, not just our mind, not just our body, but all of it, our whole self. Why? Because God is the one who comes back to the classroom. He doesn't forget us. He doesn't leave us. Our God saves, and he gets vengeance. He judges, and he rescues He rescues, to go back to the classroom metaphor, he rescues the nerds from the bullies. He makes Morgan pick up all that trash. Our God saves. And the Lord will become king over all the earth. And then, the next part. This is what happens when God becomes king over all the earth. Holiness. God makes everything Holy. Now this summer, in in July when I was preaching, one day I said, what I'm about to say is an Easter egg and it's going to come back. And today is the day. So if you were here that day, congratulations. This will be exciting to you, I hope. It is to me. Just a minute. So the high priest wore this special golden crown that had the words, holy to the Lord, kadosh Yahweh on it. And this is the sort of hat that Zechariah is like, hey, make sure he gets a hat too. Here it is. He had a turban and this golden uh, emblem over it that says, Kodesh Yahweh, holy to the Lord. Zechariah is about to take this idea and do something amazing with it. Because we learn at the end of the text, which I read and I'll read again, that holy to the Lord is no longer a designation particular to the high priest or stuff that goes in the temple. It is the result of God saving and judging actions on the day of the Lord. And so that everything is made holy. Hear this part again. On that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of horses, bells of horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be as holy as the bowls in front of the altar and every cooking pot in the homes. In Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. Everything is becoming holy. And this, I do believe, is God's intention for humanity and for all of creation. In the creation narrative, we see God making for himself a holy place, a temple. And when the king comes back, when God returns on the day of the Lord, that holiness starts to spread out. In ancient Israel, horses were considered unclean. They were unclean animals. You didn't eat them. Things that touched them were unclean, like their bells. But here, the bells have holy to the Lord on them. And then there were these pots that were used in in the temple for sacrifices. They were holy things, sort of like we might think of the cross here, or these candlesticks, or our communion service as holy. It's special. It's set apart. We just don't use it for a normal dinner. But here in this passage, we are reading that holy to the Lord is written on the regular everyday cooking pots in people's homes. The holiness is spreading. So it's not just the special thing that the priest uses to cook the sacrifice for the holy meal. It's, it's the normal things. I don't know, a pot you inherited for grandma, from grandma or that you bought at the Goodwill because you thought it would look good with holy to the Lord stenciled on it. Holy to the Lord. That all-clad <laughs> pan that moms might use to make a cheap box of macaroni and cheese for their kids. Holy to the Lord. That nonstick frying pan that you cook your egg in every morning. Holy to the Lord. And this has happened. This has happened already. Because on the day of the Lord, which has already happened, God judged and saved simultaneously at Jesus' crucifixion. In Jesus' death, God judges sin. Sin dies with Jesus on the cross. And in the crucifixion, it's sort of like God metaphorically puts his feet on both sides of the mountain of sin that separates us from God and breaks it open so we can get to God. And so God can get to us. And then in the story we read in the New Testament, 50 days after Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit is sent to the church. The Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, who makes us holy. This has happened already. But we'll hold on because I know what some of you are thinking. You were like, Sin died, Joy. (laughs) Did you read the news? Do you know what is happening around us? Do you know what is happening in my own heart? Maybe you don't want to say that. Sin, sin still lives in a way, right? It's evident it is around us. But I would say it lives a half-life. For you Harry Potter fans, it's sort of like Voldemort who separates his soul into seven parts. And when you learn that, you're like, yeah, he's not going to make it. He's going to die. <laughs> that is kind of like what has happened to sin. The die has been cast. And so in the meantime, we live in this sort of in-between time, between the first day of the Lord and the coming day of the Lord. Sometimes this is called the already but not yet of God's kingdom. There's a fancy theology word for this called realized eschatology, because the day of the Lord has come, but at the same time, the day of the Lord will come. Jesus will, and we affirm this in our creed, Jesus will one day return to judge evil and to save his people, to live eternally with him. And so in this in-between time, we have access to God through Christ in a way that Zachariah's audience could never have imagined. We no longer need a human high priest to make a sacrifice for our sin we no longer need a temple to get to God because Jesus is that high priest. Jesus is that temple. And through the spirit, the work of Christ in our lives, God is making each of us holy. Kadosh Yahweh, holy to the Lord, written on each of us. And this is good news. God's holiness is available to us. You're cooking pots or whatever. Your cooking pots, too, can have Kodesh Yahweh on it. Maybe you can tell I really love this passage. It is one of my favorite texts in the Bible. I remember a few years ago, it was actually November 22nd, because I went back and looked at my devotional book I was using at the time. I was, I was having my devotions. I was in the kitchen. It was early in the morning. Uh, I, I'd read the Bible the whole thing before, and, you know, some things you just miss, and I must have missed it before. Because I, I get to this verse, and I look up at my drainer full of dishes from the night before, and my Dutch oven was in it. It's one that Justin and I have had since we got married. It's very plain. Um, it's from J.C. Penny. And um, <laughs> I cook vegetarian soup in it a lot. And, like, I looked at that pot, and I thought, holy to the Lord that, that pot is written holy to the Lord on it, right? Every cooking pot. And it was like that day I was given these, these invisible glasses on top of my regular glasses that said holy to the Lord on it. And I could like, look around and be like, holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. This can be holy to the Lord. Because in the day of the Lord, God takes these tools, these pots and pans, these horse belts, these horse bells, uh, uh, these tools that can be used for good and evil, we recognize that, I could cook poison, I won't, right, but we could do bad things with them, but God takes them and through the Spirit makes them and us holy, and it's not limited to horse bells and cooking pots. God invites us to take every single aspect of our lives and present it to God for sanctification to be made holy. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of Romans 12 on this, and it'll be on the screen. So here's what I want you to do God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention to God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. This is our call as disciples of Jesus, my friends. This is our call to invite the Holy Spirit into every aspect of our life so that it too, this is the Hebrew here, it too is Kodesh Yahweh. It too is holy to the Lord. Maybe it bothered some of you that I put an Amazon box on the table. Remember? This is set apart, but so can everything in this box be? Take every aspect of your life. Every aspect. Think about your work and your technology use. Maybe you use a who uses a computer for their work or school? Okay? Holy to the Lord. What would it look like to do that work? Always thinking about God's call for us and the holiness that is going to come through us. To make that work holy toward the flourishing of society, toward right decisions, toward ethical foundations, toward the glory of God. And not just our work, but how we use technology. I know that Pastor Lars and I talk about this a lot. But this is a problem, my friends. Goodness is a lot easier, but so is wickedness with technology today. How do we set apart the way we use technology to be holy to the Lord? So it doesn't sound like the beginning part of Zechariah 14, but so it's holy. Students, kids who are in sports, this represents all sports today. So think of a, a soccer ball tennis racket or whatever you use. How does your participation in sports give glory to the Lord so that you respect your teammates, you learn how to be a good loser and a good winner, you recognize that it is just a game, it is not the end of the world, you respect your coach, and you minister to others on the field wholly to the Lord. All our hobbies, the way we use words, to roll off the way we use words and i know we don't probably have big dictionaries right but how do we use our words in communications with others and what we say and knowing when to be silent and when to speak up and even how we talk to god listening holy to the lord Our culture is a culture of images, especially images of ourself. We see idealized images of women and men everywhere and compare ourselves to it. And this is true here in Hinsdale as it is anywhere else. What does it look like to look in the mirror and see holy to the Lord written on it? We're holy to the Lord. And that is that is how we think of ourselves, not how we look in a selfie or on Instagram, it's how God sees us as set apart and holy to the Lord. Our clothes, I'm not asking everyone to stencil holy to the Lord on your shirts, and if you'd like this, come up later and I'll give it to you. Um, but what does it look like to even see ourselves with holy to the Lord written on it? Because we are priests, we represent God to people and people to God. We are set apart and holy, my friends, holy to the Lord in your clothing and everything you do, whether you eat or drink or sleep or work or play, holy to the Lord. You know, holy to the Lord doesn't fit on everything. I had some stickers made. They'll be out in the garden quarter. You can come up and get some for me. They gave us twice as many as we paid for, so I think that was a sign. Um, so you can get one and put it on your phone or the dashboard of your car if you struggle with re- representing God's holiness when you drive um, in Chicago. So... I, I have kind of a weird suburban life. We have a large grapevine, and every year I, I harvest the Concord grapes, and I can probably 50 quarts of grape juice for my family. It's what we drink uh, instead of juice from the store. And When I, when I picked this last year, this year isn't ready yet. I, I didn't think I would use it for communion. It's for my family, right? But you know what? This is the material becoming holy. God sent the rain. God sent the sun. And the grapes grew. And I just responded. I picked them. I um, washed them. I put them in sterilized jars. I boiled them for 20 minutes. I checked the seals. They were sealed. I put them in the basement. Normal grape juice. Normal grapes. But through the work of the Spirit making everything holy... We are reminded how holy to the Lord, from the material, holy, and and, and we'll have some of this. It'll go in us. It'll become who who we are and who part of us are as we are images of God, and this is how God works, making things holy. And so this is what we're going to do when we have communion today want to invite you to think about God's call on your own life. Holy to the Lord. What aspect in your life would you put a sticker on or an invisible stencil? Holy to the Lord.